As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that ever-youthful trickster, Jeff Goad. Hello, friends. And with us is a very special guest this week, Eric Dahm. Hello, Eric. Hello. So, Eric, you are a DCC tournament judge, a contributing writer to the latest tournament module, uh, Riders of the Flagistan. Anything else that you want us uh, to know about in terms of projects that you're working on? Uh... Other than keeping the house clean, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I believe you also contributed to the one that we just ran at Gen Con that will be coming out next year, correct? Yes, that's right. Do we have a name for that one? Is it, oh, the the Greatest Thieves in Lankmar, right? Yes. I think that's that's right. There you go. Very cool. Cool. Very cool. Thanks for being on the show, man. My pleasure. 100%. Okay. So, you know, um, Eric. Tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming and um, when you became aware of Appendix N as a concept. Well, uh, it all started when I was uh, around 10 years old, back in uh, 85. Um, I had older cousins, and they needed a player, and Mm -hmm. uh, that's when I started. Back when, if you uh, ate the minis, you could die from lead poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) And was this AD&D? No, this was uh, the boxes on... I don't know what box I was playing, but I was given the red one. Right. Okay. Most likely then, uh, uh, most likely the Menser one then probably. But uh, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And so, what did were you hooked right away, or was it something that you kind of had to get bullied into? So it's, I, I didn't have to get bullied into it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it had dragons. Right. There you go. And uh, and fifteen uh, uh, year old. Uh, guys uh, learning things from them I probably shouldn't have been at the time. <laughs> so yeah, I was hooked. Right, right. And and um, when did you sort of, were you already a fantasy and science fiction reader or was that something that sort of came along w- with playing the game? Uh, I was a, a fantasy reader, um, but to be honest, at 10 years old, it was pretty much whatever was in uh, Scholastic Books Book Fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I strongly remember Robin McKinley's Hero in the Crown mm-hmm. um, as being an, an early fantasy book that I read. But it wasn't until um, I got uh, more into college that I started checking books off the list in the back of the <laughs> mm-hmm. But you ended, the, up, uh, working, uh, you ended up being on the Howard panel this year, right? At, uh, Gen, is it Gen Con or uh, one of the... Uh, Gen Con. Gen Con. Yeah. Um, so obviously it had a big, big, uh, oh, big impact on you. The, I have read so, many, uh, so much Appendix N now and uh, offshoots of it. Um, in fact, so much so that I'm, I'm eagerly delving to stuff that I think should be Appendix N but isn't. Uh, there you go. So of the, the things that are officially part of the Appendix N, what 
kind of most surprised you that you've read so far? One of them is the uh, the incredible personalities that brought um, this work to life. Uh, Clark, uh, Clark Ashton uh, Smith, um, Philip Jose Farmer. I mean, what a polymath. Right. This guy understands linguistics, philology, mythology, religion, well, theology, which is uh, redundant there, um, social sciences. He takes them all and he blends them in. And it's a real insight into his uh, amazing personality. And really, these Appendix N authors, regardless of what you might think of some of their books, are all incredibly creative individuals and, and certainly would be an inspiration for anyone to, to pick off of. Well said, my friend. So this week we are reading Philip Jose Farmer's A Private Cosmos. Uh, and the version of the book that I'm working with today is the 1977 Ace Paperback with the Voris Vallejo cover, as we can see right here. And uh, Hoy, which one are you working with? I, oh, <laughs> it's a trifecta. We all have the same copy. Although I to actually admit that I read the current uh, Open Road Media ebook uh, because it has the 1981 Fantasia text which is recommended by Christopher Paul Carey, our previous guest on the Philip Jose Farmer uh, episodes, as being the uh, farmer's preferred text. So that's what I was working with today. This book here says uh, the Ace printing, June 1981. Okay, so I've got the 1977 printing. You've got the 81 printing. But you had the same cover that we have. So um, It's a pretty good cover. It is. Eric, do you want to tell us about what's going on on the cover? Well, you have the uh, aptly named... Half horsemen <laughs> attacking uh, Kakaha, or however we choose to pronounce it here. And, um, well, we all know that that horseman's going to die. <laughs> Percentages are. Uh, but the overall, um, the, the way that the light and everything is capturing the green sky that it's written about in the book is a detail that could be missed. Um, because you know how these things are sometimes done up and there's no collaboration between the artist and all of that. The fact that the green hues uh, are so nicely spread across the entire painting from what the actual uh, book describes is, is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a, a good, as you say, sometimes you, you get the sense that they just got information from an art director and the art director just give me, you know, a dragon and a guy in a loincloth, right? Mm-hmm. And this one is like, actually, either the art director or Boris actually read that scene. Yes. Well, you know, by this time, he had uh, he started having money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when he did the first two books or whatever, uh, time was short, um, trying to make a living real quick. And uh, by this time, he's he's fairly well established. So maybe mm-hmm. they, they had the extra time to do that. Seems like it. I think that was the right that cut, like right around 1965, 68 is when he became a full time writer. And so he was able to, you know, and his books were selling well enough that they had to listen to him a little bit. Now, Eric, does your uh, copy, or Hoy, does your copy have uh, fold-out cigarette ads in it? Um, mine does not appear to, but uh, let me see. <laughs> mine does. I have a Newport ad right here. On the other side of my Newport ad is the True Cigarettes ad. And then at about page 150, I've got this fold-out ad for the Science Fiction Book Club, where for 10 cents, you can get four books. Sadly, mine does not. Um, it does have some ads in the back for other authors, but so I'm 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 deeply disappointed. I feel like I've lost out. My, mine has Campbell <laughs> Cash. 
<laughs> nice. So before we start chatting about uh, what we all thought of the book, we're going to quickly take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Gobbit. Gobbit. So Gobbit is found on page 176, and it says, Padar screamed long and loudly like a great bird in agony instead of triumph as she tore gobbets of flesh from the man's back. And a gobbet is a piece or lump of flesh food or other matter. So now we can head on over to the library. Um, Eric, what did you think of Philip Jose Farmer's A Private Cosmos? Uh, I like it a lot. Uh, I am going to be upfront and say that um, for him, uh, for me, there's nothing better than his um, hmm. So I'm not going to uh, rain on this thing's parade because this is part of the road, uh, really the penultimate uh, journey to him getting to his genius, which is Riverworld, which takes all the elements from everything that he's ever written and puts it into what I consider the best icing on the cake. Regardless, there's so much good in here. And the third book stands out to me because he starts to take time with characterization and plot. The first two books... Yeah, they're genius as far as their world building goes and the pure creative imagination uh, coming up with things and anything goes aspect. But the plotting is simple and almost inconsistent. Um, And characterization is very low. And uh, I would have to agree with uh, your previous host that the lack of Kakaha in the second book is makes it not have the same weight as the other um the 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 first two you know to me seem like amazing vistas oh wow moments strung together with action and i think that this book private cosmos spends much more time working on um the uh inner machinations and and meta thought of the characters and why they're doing things and has a less uh, or more nuanced take on morality mm-hmm that's that's my overall uh, opinion of it. Great. And how about you, Hoy? Um, I think those are some uh, really uh, sharp insights. I do think um, it seems like as Farmer was writing this series, he realized that uh, Kikaha or Kikaha was really the character that he was most in tune with. And he just kind of slowly left Robert Wolf uh, or Jadwin, who turns out, you know, secretly a, a lord of, this, of the cosmos. And uh, Kikaha is both more... Um, both more uh, aspirational, but also more down to earth at the same time, because we can't all be in- immortal 10,000 year old, you know, super scientists, uh, godlike beings. <laughs> Eric's saying, well, not, I can't. But <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, well, um, Kakaha really does make it go. And it's funny that you say the person he's most in tune with, because, yeah. I mean, it is him. Right. It's the author. Right. Literally in, the same in initials. The Paul Janus Finnegan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and he does. I the, didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know that in um, in Riverworld, uh, he's uh, uh, PJ Farmer as well. I right. forget what his name uh, is, uh, but it's PJF. Yeah, yeah. That's and, funny. Um, there is definitely a lot of meta. He's most probably the most metafictional author we've read so far in some ways. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, he blends it all. <laughs> yeah. Anything goes. 
I know this is off topic, but it reminded me of at the Goodman Games booth at Gen Con this year. Uh, we're all supposed to write our initials on the water bottles. So I, of course, wrote my JG on my water bottle. And then a little bit later, looked over and noticed Joseph Goodman was drinking it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, all right. I will write Jeff on my water bottles moving forward. <laughs> but guys, I loved this book. Oh, was... I had so much fun reading it. And it's absolutely my favorite of the three so far. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear that Riverworld is even better than this because I, I'm i loving this and have not yet read any Riverworld books. But man, I thought this was just like nonstop creativity, uh, just lots and lots of fun, action-packed sequences. Like, yes, it's light on characterization. Um, but even so, I think Kikaha is a great character. I think Anana has some depth. Um but it really just it's 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 just a fun nonstop action packed roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. I really felt like from the very moment it started, it was just moving. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a great job of building tension. That whole scene with the herd of buffalo was so wild. Right. The scene with the uh, resonant circuit with the gates near the end. Like, I'm just like, what's going to happen next? Right. And like, every time he appeared, something uh, appeared in the next place. Like there was something really exciting and fun happening. I I was just, especially after the last few we've read, this one was just such a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. And the, the sense of peril is very um, Saturday afternoon serial, but real. I mean, uh, Kikaha feels real pain. He knows that there are battles that he's not going to win. So he tries to run away from um, you know, he, he dives into the water. Um, his, um, he's, he's a very amorous character, but he's also very affectionate to all the women that he's involved with. Even like the craziness of Padar, she still is kind of sympathetic. He's like totally willing to kill her if she tries to kill him, but he's also sympathetic to her plight, right? So mm-hmm. I think he's a very um, generous character in a way, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and the action and the story as a whole is very generous in a way. Yeah, and uh, when I was talking about low characterization, I think um, that that was really mostly the other two volumes. Um, this mm-hmm. one brings up the characterization to a level that the series hadn't really attained yet. I agree. And again, that might have more to do with him not having to hack out books to make a living. Mm-hmm. Like, he's making a living. He has a little bit more time to, to do what he thinks uh, would work best. Mm-hmm. But and yeah, this is-, this is a really fun ride. That buffalo scene is, uh, you know... At one point, it's sci-fi, and then at the next point, it's like he's a, a Native American doing these like horse hop buffalo type things that may not have really happened in, in our real history, but certainly we have stereotypes for that having happened. Right, right. And um, it's an amazing set. Oh, uh, that may see, and the, and the fact that the centaur chasing him is like the is the the, the half horse man is is unblooded, right? So mm-hmm. he's trying to make his bones. So he actually tries to jump up on top of a buffalo too and then you eventually get falls and gets trampled uh but then kick like like salutes his courage right he's like wow oh, yeah, that's yeah. so brave right <laughs> it's like <yeah. laughs> um i love the escape from like the original mayan city and his his lover there and them trying to escape through the various tiers and you know she eventually you know ends up with a bad fate but she's a really interesting character in her own right yeah, Cladatol. Uh, Cladatol. And mm-hmm. um, he's not sure if she's going to try to kill him at first because he left her under, you know, sort of, uh, you know, roguish circumstances the first time. Um, and there's a massive reward on his head, too. Right, right. And yeah, she, big time. She's, yeah, and she's definitely, like, she's, uh, she's a thief and a right. shit kicker. Right, right. 
Um, and I liked how the character's like, oh, well, you know, she's a little uh, thicker in the legs and, you know, she eats this horrible cheese. <laughs> it's kind of it's really horrible. <laughs> but, you know, she's really, you know, but she's my kind of gal, right? Because she's got personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I love how she says, uh, you know, I haven't been with a man since you've left. I've been waiting with you. And he says something like, please, you couldn't go a week without being with a man. And then they, bo- <laughs> and then they both just laugh. <laughs> that well, was a great moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, sexuality is, is one of... Uh, uh, Phillips uh, main aspects of a writer that he's acclaimed for. I mean, he broke barriers early on um, with his first uh, novella lovers, mm-hmm. which uh, won a Hugo for something. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, first novel or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. For, and, for, um, for best uh, words on a page. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, the cool thing is, is basically he made the characters walk the walk not just talk the talk like they had been doing in sci-fi before mm-hmm. uh, where it was just all innuendo or uh, you know pretty pictures um, you know with his books people start doing it right right yeah. and and also he explores a lot of uh, sexual rights and freedom issues and some of those come up here not so much as some of his other books but you'll notice how he while he is interested sexually in women he says things like if she's interested he's not a taker of women um he asks he wants uh consensual agreement Mm -hmm. unlike many of our previous muscle-bound alternate reality wish fulfillment authors Mm -hmm. yeah and 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 the women's sexuality is very much about what they want podarge the the harpy demands mm -hmm. that he sleep with her right and you know he's happy to budge, but it's like you know, um, and uh, Anana is is not really into it. So he's like, well, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, but until she comes around, I'm not doing anything, right? You know, and exactly, and, right? Yeah, he's a little crass by today's standards, but you know what? Yeah. Um, of all of the people we read in an appendix N, he's probably the least problematic in that aspect. Um, he uh, believes a lot in. Uh, the freedom of uh, sex, even amongst aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's like, I, I really feel like the way that female sexuality is handled here, it, I mean, sure, it's not the absolute best, but it's significantly better than most of his uh, peers at the time. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that was cracking me up, though, is uh, the focus on Padarja's breasts. Yeah. Like, at one point, one of the eagle swears wait what, what does the eagle say i actually I, I i've got this written down somewhere um oh yeah um page 65 the eagle says oh i lost it oh, yeah by the breasts of padarge yes yes <laughs> by the breasts of padarge yes and then um on page 159 we're describing her saying despite her beautiful face and beautiful breasts she is a hybrid monster and therefore disgusting to the to human males <laughs> Except Kikaha. <laughs> exactly. Except Kikaha. Yeah. Well, he's very open-minded. Great, uh, great <laughs> Odin's beard. Um, yeah, and there are a couple of places uh, where uh, references are possessive of um, sexual opposites or uh, women, um, but they're from the point of view of the crow, um, one of Wolf's uh, eyes and ears, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, there's uh, a spot in here. He says, uh, "You know, someone has stolen his uh, uh, Chryseis from him, and he's going to find the thief and kill him, and then bring his woman back." 
Mm-hmm. Now that's not Philip Jose speaking. Yeah, that's you know the old school bird. The funny thing with uh, with the uh, mythological figure of uh, Croesus uh, from uh, Troy, uh, the Iliad, is that she was stolen, and uh, it's just really weird because her being stolen was a major problem, and uh, it caused a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really not sure if that's affecting wolf so much uh as it did his his choices for people's names i think they have a lot of meaning but i don't think he sticks to them too literally mm-hmm. i think uh, yeah it's an illusion yeah. it gives you a, a a layer but he's not gonna get hemmed in by by that you know no and i think like the names of all the lords are um from like yates's poetry i think or something like that uh blake blake Blake, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so very apocalyptic, very um, Gnostic in certain senses, right? They're all sort oh, of. Oh, bo- I love it when somebody throws the Gnosticism know, around. Right, borderline, awesome. borderline uh, divinities. Uh, mm-hmm. And well, Bla- Blake's a huge influence yeah. on on Jose, and they're actually, without them being the same person, very similar. Hmm. Uh, both were Christians, but not in a sense, not in the normal sense of things. Uh, both of them. Uh, viewed God in in the beauty and the art of creativity. And um, if you read some of Blake's stuff, which it's it's pretty incredible, um, both of them deny almost every tenant that a typical religious follower would abide by. They are anti-doctrinal. In fact, I wouldn't even say they're religious. I would just say that um, they appreciate their idea of God in the spirit of art. Mm. And um, they both were artists who felt hemmed in by uh, traditions and felt somewhat underloved. And uh, both were also, uh, you know, these uh, Renaissance-type fellows. Right, and, and largely self-taught in a lot of ways, too. I think oh, was absolutely. the was the, uh, yeah. the other thing that came, ac- came across, both about Farmer yeah. and, and Blake. Yeah, so that's Blake the- edited... Printed, type copied, wrote, and drew everything for all of his creations. Incredible. While working for the man. <laughs> right. And the <laughs> farmer was the technical writer for like the first 15 years of his career, which is pretty incredible. So uh-huh. I have to think about like, can you imagine like doing, realizing that the thing you are doing is related to the thing that you most hate doing, but having mm-hmm. to do it <laughs> anyway at the same time? <laughs> right. Well, well yeah. Blake ran a press. Right. He printed off all of these other people's works right. who he thought were abysmal and he could do better than. Right. <laughs> yeah, a lot of similarities there. Right. So what we're basically saying is Farmer is a, uh, an OSR D- DM, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's especially true, I think, when we get to the part where he starts talking about his love of um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're 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 on the moon, and we discover that a whole section of the moon had been designed based on Wolf's love of the Barsoom series. <laughs> right. uh, but but he also talked about how he didn't get it quite right, and there were some mistakes in there. Right, right. But that's also very OSR. It's right. like let's 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 take the things we like and use it the way we want to use it. Right, right. It's like oh yeah, well, I just realized that there's no mammals other than man, and so these apes are, are not supposed to be suckling. You know, they're little baby apes. But ah, oh, okay, it's too late. We've got couple thousand of them out in the wild let's just go with it (laughs) (laughs) there is uh the morality aspect there though yeah um you know the uh redeemed jedowin wolf um you know who in a very religious sense fell 
spent time on Earth and reclimbed back to the pinnacle as a redeemed angel, right. lord, whatever, um, pays a lot of attention uh, to really not messing things up the way he used to. Right. And I think part of this scene elucidates that aspect of his new character. In the past, he just made things willy-nilly. Right. You know, just slap some lady's brain, throw it into another body, right. now have sex with it. Right. Now he's very know, careful. make it my wife. Right. He's, he's careful not to make this crazy ecosystem in the moon that could get out of whack. Right. Yeah, he, but he also he yeah. knows morally that right. it's, it's wrong. Right. And he's not going to create new intelligent species. And, mm-hmm. Right. And he's a... He's now realizing he's sort of a sub-creator rather than, you know, the ultimate creator in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, that level of arrogance has been taken away from him, that wolf. And then, and then uh, Kikaha is just so happy just to be able to play in all these environments. He doesn't, have, he doesn't mm-hmm. care about creating any of this stuff. He's like, oh, it's great. I get to live in the world of tears and never have to go back to Earth. You know, I've been, I've been the only person who's been, uh, the only Earth man who's been in this universe. It's amazing. It's all for me, you know. <laughs> um, it, well, that sounds a little bit like a God complex there. Right, it's all right, for me. Right. But, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And um, it's it's weird that he is also he, – he talks tougher than he is. Right. You know, he's always like, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill this guy. But when presented with an unarmed person, um, and, and he usually offers mercy. Right. Um, he is not willing to stab people in the back like Anana is. Is that how? Right. Well, I I might disagree with that statement a little bit, just because one one scene that I loved was on um, page one eighty. I'm sorry, on page eighty five. So this is now Anana and uh, Kikaha, and it says they sneaked onto a farm near the edge of town and stole clothes, three horses, and weapons. To do Mm. this, it was necessary to knock out the farmer, his wife, and the two sons while they slept. (laughs) <laughs> that caught my attention as well but because that's pretty murder hobo he, he only knocked them out <laughs> fair yeah. but i okay. would still say that breaking into a farmer's home and knocking out him <laughs> him his wife and his two children so that he can steal some horses and some food is not necessarily the best example of a moral character i'm not trying to say he's <laughs> he's he's moral um <laughs> But he's Some not... would say that that's actually pretty amoral. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as, you as mean as immoral, as... right? Yeah. But I bet he tr- he stopped her probably from cutting them all. Right. Uh-huh. That's that's that, that was probably their their compromise. That's probably the implication. I mean, certainly that's fair. That's fair. He reads to me as um, if we're going to get into uh, and it's a little bit more on the gaming side, you know, definitely chaotic. Yeah, chaotic yeah. good to sle- to bordering to chaotic neutral, but definitely not. You know, definitely nowhere near. Uh, anywhere on the evil or true neutral spectrum, you know, he's definitely he's definitely about his freedom. You know, hey, it's my freedom, man. You know, um, but you know, live and let live as long as you're not trying to bust my chops. You know, is mm-hmm. is, is his kind of thing, um, and, and that he has a sense of responsibility. Like he, he's genuinely upset when the uh, the tribe that he was living on, sort of the Amerindian plane, yes. the, the Hurawakas. Hero- were were attacked by the you know the Maya Aztec substitutes and he's like those were my people and he breaks bursts yeah. into tears yeah um, so he does have a sense of responsibility um, he, he does to a degree yeah. um, and I'm totally with that yeah. but it's the kind of uh, immoral or amoral uh, responsibility that uh, troubles us in today's times and I wonder if he's playing into that at all because there's issues in, with him politically back in the time he's writing. 
Um, and you'll see in, in days like today, you know, there'll be uh, politicians or people who don't understand the grief of others, mm. can't, don't see the reasoning or the morality behind things until it happens to them. Sure. And I think part of the reason why Kikaha is as successful of a character as he is, is because he can be all of these things all at once and still ring true, mm -hmm. which I think is a very human experience. You know, some of us are very moral and empathetic and understand the sufferings of others. But in a situation where our life is at risk, we will end up doing things that we would not normally deem moral or okay in other circumstances. Absolutely. You mm -hmm. never know what a person's like or you're like until the blank hits the fan. And oftentimes in uh, genre fiction, especially of the era, uh, those kinds of emotional complexities were not seen as often. So it is nice to kind of see Kikaha display uh, such a wide variety of um, emotions isn't the word I'm looking for, but just a wide variety of um I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, he's a varied character. Yeah. Positions. He's yeah. human. Right, yeah. right. And and as I was as saying before, and, and I think uh, you two were as well, is his being in this book and being the main character and the characterization of him as a uh, flawed human with uh, cognitive disconnects and things he believes and doesn't believe makes him ring more true. Mm -hmm. And that helps ground the book which is otherwise impossible right <laughs> and he also he's 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 both a hero and an anti-hero rather than firmly being one or the other right right because i feel like with the anti-heroes we've been pre presented with in the past like the kugels and the jack of shadows mm -hmm. those anti-heroes are tr they they amp up the anti right. yes <laughs> right right, right. Um, yeah kugel's a bad person right kugel is definitely <laughs> bad <laughs> And Jack of Shadows is a pretty bad person right. himself. Right. Yes, and yes. Even, he doesn't start there, but right. he ends yeah, up yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, even even uh, even um, the Mouser is is really a horrible person when you really think about it. You Without Fawford, yeah, 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 pretty much. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, probably. A couple of interesting things, and you point this out. It's worth noting that um, uh, Kikaha is this amazing physical specimen. He's able to stand in for Tarzan at one point in the early books, um, but at his heart. And because if he's a farmer analog, he's a 55-year-old man at this point, right? He's got the perspective of someone who's lived through a lot of things, right? And so that, I think, informs a lot of the complexity and the depth of him as a character, right? He's, he's a 55-year-old he's a man who hasn't had to grow up in many ways. He hasn't had to pay a mortgage or any of those things. He opted out on that stuff. But he, he still has a sort of uh, more perspective than uh, some of our other sword and sorcery characters who are perpetually, you know, 21, 22, right? He um, was in World War II. Right, he was a World War II. That's quite a perspective. Right, he was a tank driver in World War II. Um, that so, may give him some of his flexibility when it comes to life and death morality mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. It's probably ingrained in him. Right. I think anyone who went through that stuff would have to right, right. And, do that or cry in a corner. Right. And at the very end, you know, even talking about the Bellers, who are these inhuman sort of uh, intelligences that are the, the main villains in this book, who are basically take over people's bodies and can hop from body to body under the right circumstances. And he goes... Um, you know, when the last beller uh, seemingly dies, he goes, um, the jaw dropped like a, dro like a drawbridge to re release the soul, if the beller had, had a soul. And why not, if anyone did? The bellers were deadly enemies, peculiarly, har peculiarly horrible because of their method of possession. But in actuality, they were no more vicious or deadly than any human enemy. 
So he has a he has sympathy. He's not gonna like stop. He's gonna like kill them before they kill him. But he's like, yeah, okay, I would have done the same thing. You know, I, they're not that bad, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's really impressive that we can make it to the half hour mark of this episode without having even brought up the main villains <laughs> of the book, the Bellers, because that's how much there is going on in this novel. It really is that rich and that jam packed full of ideas and full of events. I think that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. But now that we are at that mark, though, that does mean we can start to pivot this conversation towards the gaming side. And I'm curious. Uh, so, Eric. The World of Tears series is specifically cited in the Appendix N as a source of inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons, um, both for the writing and for something that you can read to find inspiration in your gaming. I'm curious, why do you think this series is specifically cited? And also, since you love Riverworld so much and you've read that, why that one is not cited? Okay. Um, just quickly to get the Riverworld one out of the way. Um, it was written later. Well, there are Riverworld books that were written prior to the yeah, ADD. Yeah, but I, I think what happened is Gygax uh, got caught up in this, mm-hmm. and um, you know that was what he was reading, and those came along later, and he may have been too you know involved um, into that. And also, I think everything that he would want in his game was already existent in World of Tears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I would add I, I'm also, sorry, in, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah. Riverworld only adds the intellectual aspect to what is already the uh, the thing that he he wants from. Uh, and the thing that I would add to that is, I mean, specifically in the appendix, and Gary Gygax recommends that you just go out and read all the Phillips Jose Farmer you can find. Mm-hmm. So that includes Riverworld, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But he really kind of specifically honed in on read World of Tears. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. World of Tears really does contain just about everything you kind of would need for a, for a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Right, right. I mean, this book, more. in this book alone, I think there's at least three dungeon crawls, right? Like him escaping from the city, that's one dungeon crawl. The, yep. the final battle in the in Jadwin's, uh palace is a dungeon crawl. I think in mm-hmm. Podarge's whole thing is you could also classify as a dungeon crawl. So that's three right there. I might even be missing one. Um, you, you, there's there's the wilderness travel and leading up to the buffalo fight. Um, there's uh, you know Kikaha is he a fighter? He's got a little bit of thiefiness too, right? So he could be multi class, right? Yeah, uh, he can hide in shadows right? and, and, and climb and do all sorts of crazy stuff like that and disguise himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely a sort of tactical element, you know, like um, mm-hmm. it's not as big of a party as is at the end of the first book or when Jadwin's with the other lords in the second book, but he still has a party at various points. Like he has that one uh, Teuton warrior who he hooks up with uh, towards the the final battle uh, and then Anana and comes back and they, they also are trying to get the eagles into an alliance and get the sort of Viking analogs into an yeah, alliance. Yeah, the red beards. Yeah, the red beards who are also... Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting because it's not just throwing in Vikings, right? They're Vikings, but they've actually intermarried, so they're actually Native American Vikings, right? They just have to have a lot of the Viking culture, right? Because they had they had landed at some point and they'd sort of interbred, and they were on the other side of the sea. Um, so he's never so um, he's never so schematic as to say like this is a one to one analog with anything, right? Yeah. Like the the Teutons are actually Jewish, right? The 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 the, the German knights on the on the, the the level, that medieval level, are actually that's ju- just sat, uh, satire and humor. Right, exactly. he's a very ironic fellow. Exactly, <laughs> but um, um, but yeah. So so to as far as D and D goes, uh, I'm sure this has been hashed over. So I'm going to go through it quickly. Uh, gates. Yep. Okay. Um, bringing into the fantasy world some of the 
real big scientific discoveries of the time, um, merging in pocket universes, uh, multiple uh, world uh, theories, um, wormholes, and things like that. Yeah, these earlier authors from Einstein, from special relativity, had some of this kind of stuff feeding in, but the discoveries being made by uh, astrophysicists and theoretical physicists during his time um, were really a fertile playground for him to mess with for his imagination. And, uh, you know, this is an amazing world. I think of a lot of worlds that have been imagined before. Okay, you have a hollow earth um, and, and so on. But this one takes a shape and a being that is really unique and i think for dnd i mean that just okay can you do this right. yeah. this is how you build a world right. what's on your mind right not other people's um i would say you know planescape um you, you know it's a mixed bag because he's pulling from moorcock mm -hmm. um and all of these people at the same time uh but i don't there's so much to say about that that's already been said, so I don't right. want to really dwell on it too much. I know a question you normally have from other podcasts is, what system would I use? Oh, for sure. This? Yeah, let's go yeah. for it. MCC. Ah. Absolutely there great answer. Yep. Yeah. I, you couldn't have it all at once because you have these different regions and all that. Um, but uh, MCC uh, would, I, would be flexible. Um, you know, the Bellers are right in there as AI. Uh, there's Real not quick, so, for somebody who's yeah. listening who might not know exactly what MCC is, do you want to go ahead and let them know? Sure. Mutant Crawl Classics, which is a separate uh, offshoot of DCC. It can be run on its own without the uh, DCC books, though you should just buy both and play them both as much as you can. There you go. Mutant Crawl Classics is uh, a uh, love child of post-apocalyptic... Uh, writings uh appendix m as you uh will and um gamma world and uh metamorphosis alpha and so on and so forth it's pre-genre fiction sci-fi mashup mm -hmm. with rabbits and machine guns <laughs> <laughs> and i feel like it would best best be done if you had the dcc classes with the mcc rules mm. to do a world of tears adventure because I don't really know that necessarily that the, the mutants or the plantians or uh, I I, I want to see a deed die in there because Kikahad's doing all kinds of crazy deeds. Right, right. I would totally include those other classes. Yeah, yeah. Deed die. He's got maybe also uh, definitely very high luck score. You know, yeah. and he's burning it down from time to time because he knows he's running out. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I Lots see of fleeting luck. Yep, I see stuff that's uh, back into D and D that we also don't talk about as much, but certainly traps and puzzle solving that were mm -hmm. key components of original Dungeons and Dragons, um, and saving throws. Honestly, because he's always saving against like a death ray or this that you know. So like, why do we have these specific saving throws as opposed to a reflex saving throw or a Constitution saving throw or a will saving throw that are very common now? Why why the categories that Gygax originally came up with? And it's it's these weirdo things, right? It's it's the, the rods, the the weird artifacts and devices, right? It's like uh, the beamer, the beamers, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he bounces the beamer ray around the corner, and so the guy only gets partially burned. So maybe they made the saving throw there, you know. So I think that um, yeah, yeah. No, I I had really thought about the trap aspect. Yeah. Um, like 
I do like that. I'm going to use that room with the moving furniture. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That is going into something right. um, fun. Uh, but the way that he has to problem solve to get himself out of that jail is pure players trying to beat your thing right. by any means necessary. <laughs> right, right. Coming up with stuff you wouldn't possibly. Right, right. You know, come up with. Oh, I see that the drain is not connected to the to the spout. Okay, let me just block the drain here and see if it affects the spout, right? Or yeah, but then there's no intake right, outtake right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, modulator. Right. So, <laughs> so the whole place starts filling up, and then they start flooding through the areas. It's like uh, the solution might be worse than the actual problem, and that's so D and D, right? Just up the stakes, up the stakes. Absolutely, <laughs> it's a great example of Hoy's uh, yes, but <laughs> right. Always, always. Yeah. Say yes fail, to players. Fail forward. Fail forward. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that absolutely worked. Yeah. However. Yeah, however. Exactly. <laughs> that now means this is happening. Right, right. Now it's worse. Right. <laughs> well, it's better and it's worse. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not dead yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> your your immediate problem was fixed, but now you've got a bigger problem right, to deal with. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh there's another book that I'd be reticent to not mention, and I, I do this frequently because I don't think that Jose gets enough, uh, Philip gets enough uh, credit for this, and that's uh, Dark as the Sun. Mm, that's... And um, it is really awesome. Um, it's much closer to Mutant Crawl Classics. Um, if it's not on that Appendix M, I would be shocked. Right, right. It literally has a walking vegetable. <laughs> um Two uh, barbarian types, a sentient tank weapon kind of thing. I know. Um, I know. There's like a, on the cover. There's a raft and like a centaur type creature on there. I don't know if that's the plant itself. The, the centaur is the plant, the plant. Plant thing. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and it's the smartest thing. Yeah. It is. So in this uh, book, it has all the great stuff that you love, but it uh, is uh, self-contained. And definitely worth a read. The action is great. The set pieces are great. And you that it could very well be just another world in the world of tears. Mm-hmm. Or in, in those pocket universes. Because and so could Riverworld. Right. And so is Earth. Right. The one we're on is part of his universe and it is made up. Right. I love that. I mean that's the power of this this concept, right? This conceptual power allows anything that you want to wrap up into there. So, you know, if you're a genre purist, you mm-hmm. might want to stay away. <clears throat> certain certain AS. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also goes into a, a tradition of those like um, H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. and uh, 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 Jose Borges uh, of Telon mm-hmm. fame. Um, you know, both those people made things up and made them be real part of the universe. And then other authors... And other people continue to carry those on until they insert themselves so much into later writings that they're just taken for granted that, yeah, there's a Necronomicon. Right, right. <laughs> yes, there's another plane of Talon. Right, right. And, um, you know, the there is a palace at the end of this book. I'm not giving away anything. But it is uh, set up very much in the way that a lord runs their palaces. In, and so is... Um, a, to a certain degree, that aspect uh, resonates in, in uh, believe it or not, there is some um, slow getting into it. It's not a mile away, like where you know that, you yeah. know, Jadawin is is Wolf or right. vice versa right off the bat. Slow disclosure was right. what I was looking right. for. I think he had time, as you said, to, to slow down mm-hmm. and not just be... Um, sort of Saturday morning serial pacing as, it, as yeah. his career possessed. And I think also... Um, 
other people have jumped into this, like the whole creation or mm-hmm. linking all mm-hmm. the old Newton universe, which is sort of the, yes. the implication that all of all of fiction, not just Jose Far- Philip Jose Farmer's fiction, but all of fiction is actually connected in the same universe. Basically, mm-hmm. if I, uh, you know, that Tarzan. Even Vonnegut's best book. Right, right. Um, so, <laughs> Kill Core Trap. Right. Uh, right. That was his, you know, his joke on. Uh, yeah, so, there's a lot of jokes in Farmer, but he's also a huge influence on people like uh, Alan Moore's uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, if you're reading into mm-hmm. other medium. Uh, so, um, and so drawing back and going back to all these very primal sources, right? It's implied that Jadwin and the gods are, uh, the other lords are sort of the, uh, inspirations for various mythological figures. Um, but that they also, again, right in this book, we have Kikaha. It's like, oh, I, I read Edgar Rice Burroughs. So Edgar Rice Burroughs exists in that universe, right? Um, mm-hmm. and then this whole. Well, J- Jadwin is a straight up, uh, play on Odin. Right. I mean, there's just, it's super obvious. Right. And he's, he's, but with other people picking up, like Jose, if, if I understand right, was really good at allowing fan fiction. And uh, I think at one point he had like open license to use his stuff hmm. for people to write. And uh, while not the same, I mean, H.P. Lovecraft right, like, had all of his, his uh, best buddies right, right. They were throw in, that in the Necronomicon and the, the Cthulhu universe into his stuff. Right. And he was doing the same with their stuff. Right. Yeah. He was bringing yeah. Sathagwa into his world. Mm-hmm. and I... Um, just learned this week, I haven't read, I remember seeing the covers, but I know at the end of his career, Philip Jose Farmer um, sort of produced this series he didn't actually write called the, Ju- the Dungeon, and he had a bunch of pretty well-known writers like Richard Lupoff write, and it was like a series of six uh, novels about a sort of Victorian adventurer who ended up in a sword and sorcery world. Uh, um, <laughs> and so there's like three or four pretty well-known writers who were involved in this, and I guess maybe Farmer just gave the outline and said, here's the, here's the concept. My name can be on the cover along with yours. You'll all be into it. Um, so, again, as you say, uh, an open world giving people a playground. Um, but by the very fact of just calling it the dungeon in 1990s means he has had to have been acknowledging the presence of role-playing games. Like, why would you even yeah. call right? Uh, understanding that even if he wasn't playing them, it's like, okay, I understand that there's this attraction. People are building worlds and um, doing that. And I think one of the later books in this series, uh, Red Orc's Rage, is very metafictional as well. It's about this guy who's in therapy, and he's reading the, the World of Tears series as a sort of a, uh, sort of a, ther- a form of therapy. Uh, but I haven't gotten to that book yet. But I, I, Yeah, was that for some kind of childhood trauma? Some or kind of childhood like trauma. Thing. Right, it, yeah. right. That's my, my understanding. Basically, he wrote the series, the first five books in the series, and then he had a long period of writer's block in relation to this series. I know he's still producing work. And then he wrote two more books at the very end, which... Some people don't even lump in because they they feel very different, but mm-hmm. that's my understanding. Well, I've heard the same about um, the Red Orc. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, uh, and I have not read the fourth book in this series. Uh, was it uh, Beyond the Walls of Terror or something? Uh, yes. Behind the Walls of Terror, right? And then the Lavalite okay. World, and then after that, I, I have gap. seen people say that 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 fourth book is quite good. Mm-hmm. So I do uh, plan on getting to it uh, uh, soon. Right. Well, can, um, that's one of the things about this project. You're reading this like, wait, I got another six weeks before, I, or six months before I got to read the next book. Nah, I'm just gonna go ahead and read it anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. mm-hmm. <laughs> so now this story does end with them going to Earth. Now the idea of playing a D and D or MCC game where your characters end up going to Earth does that sound really fun and exciting, or does that sound really dumb? For me, I wouldn't play it. No. Not, not unless you were my friend. <laughs> <laughs> if, if somebody wanted to try something out, man, I'll play it. But um, 
that does not sound like the mashup I'm looking for. <laughs> How about you, Hoy? You've got your OSE Yunsuin game going right, right now. Right. Uh, could you imagine opening up a gate to 1970s Southern California? I'm off two minds on this. Um, you know, Ken Height, the designer and writer, he's always like, there's nothing more interesting and weird than the real world. And, you know, we, we just can't make up stuff that's, that's that weird. You, you just have to kind of know where to look. So Southern California 1970s is really weird, right? <laughs> right. Um, um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, depending on the kind of game you're playing, if the scale doesn't allow for fireballs in, you know, um, you know, Pasadena, right, then it's not going to work <laughs> that well. But on the other hand, going the other direction might be a lot of fun, right? So instead of coming from our current perspectives, imagine us, like, yeah, I think it's actually one of the funnels in one of, like, the Goodman Games um, Gen Con annuals, like, where you're, like, a bunch of people in the 70s sitting in a movie theater and like, the portal opens up behind the screen or something like that. I believe you're thinking yeah. of Forrest Aguirre's Beyond the Silver Screen, right, right. which was a third-party project. Okay, there was product. that, and there was something like that, though, also. Uh, maybe it wasn't a movie theater, but it was 70s, uh, 70s final characters in the, yeah, one of okay. the good guys. And it might, might have been Br- his, like a precursor to his thing. But anyway. Br- bringing uh, those kinds of super players into uh, the mundane real Earth, um, I, I don't know. Yeah. That... Uh, that would be I, I think it could work if you said, okay, you have this wizard, yeah. right? And he gets transported back into um Mycenaean Greece. Right. Okay. And well that's actually kind of already been done with uh what was that, the long tomorrow or where the guy gets uh, modern day guy gets transported back to Rome. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, um So, you know, in effect that's the same thing the because he'd be a wizard. The the Elspark the camp the, one. Um Yeah. Uh, uh, less so, darkness fall. Less darkness fall. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, I think that could work on a, on a, a personal level. But if you really did that, I think you'd have to account for the fact that our real world contains like Marvel and DC superheroes to counteract. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure I would play that still, but <laughs> right, it would have to be that reality. I think you're right. Um, but coming from our reality, we could certainly pull up people, and, and it's obviously been done all the time. There's always people who prior to like these fully developed, you know, uh, secondary worlds, you know, it was always someone, you know, it was lying the witch in the wardrobe. It was always something like that. People going through a portal and ending up into fairy or, or something equivalent. So it's, mm-hmm. it's easy to go in the other direction from our world to an imaginary world. But what is the appropriate way to go from a, a fully imaginary world into an imagined world version of our real world? Um, I think is really c- dependent on where they end up and when they end up. Right. As you know, if you just said, uh, you know, Brooklyn, you know, 2019, well, you know, we've got our challenges, but I don't think it would be, provide that much challenge to a party of, you know, DCC adventurers, you know, third level DCC adventurers. So not unless they needed money right. and they had to get a dishwashing job. Right. <laughs> but um, there is somebody who does do this well to a degree. And I, I had forgotten uh, Salman Rushdie. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the books, but. He dabbles in magical realism. So uh, there's room for the world to not be as it is, even if you're in the mundane world. Mm -hmm. For example, if you've seen um, Pan's Labyrinth. Right. Okay, that's classical magical realism. Is that weird stuff happening? Probably. Right. So, um, you know, in uh, Satanic Verses, uh, the book starts off with a uh, terrorist explosion of the plane. And two people are falling from its heights for thousands of feet, and one is sort of an angel and one's sort of a, 
a demon and they have a great philosophical conversation on the way down and the world sort of warps to their various uh, uh, devices. There's another one that was more recent where um, things start getting mixed up between uh, jinns uh, showing up um, and uh, mashup of uh, like comic book people. All these things start becoming real in, in our current day modern world. So Salman Rushdie pulls it off. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten about right. him. Uh, another author, I mean, again, we're going a little farther afield, would be like Tim Powers with the Declare series. But that is more in the realm of horror. Uh, so it's more mm-hmm. sort of more like below the surface, whereas something overt, like overtly adventurous characters landing in our world, I think is, is harder to pull off without changing the world. Absolutely. I agree. And and for the most part, attempts to do that, like the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe movie from the <laughs> 80s. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> It it doesn't usually play well at all. Yeah, yeah I think it's appropriate oh for gosh. like a convention one shot or or or, or as, a, as a palate cleanser. But it, I think it would have a hard time doing it over a long haul. You know. Yeah, but I, yeah. I do think Eric's idea of doing because uh, because Eric mentioned the superheroes, yeah. and I started thinking of like what other kind of versions of our universe would be fun. And I started thinking of like the Street Fighter universe or like the Mortal Kombat universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, some kind of that video would be game a take up on concept. Ours. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Asian cinema has less of a problem. It's certainly, sort of a lot of Hong Kong cinema where you suddenly have martial arts characters in the modern, you know, mythological martial arts characters in the modern day. Can't accommodate mm. that, but our sense of what's real is a little too codified to allow that. But in in Asian cinema, I think it's a little bit more um, loose between what's what's real and what's not real, um, and. So our closest equivalent, as you say, Eric, is is superhero cinema, uh, which is now mm-hmm. the dominant form of cinema. So maybe we're getting closer to being able to do that. Yeah, you know. So hey, real real quick, um, I found that book, uh, two years, eight months, and twenty eight nights by Salman Rushdie. It was two thousand fifteen. It's set in New York in the near future. It deals with gins and recounts the story of uh, a great storm that splits the world of gin and the world of men uh, into each other. And uh, emerges dark jinns uh, invade Earth, and uh, they join together and fight, and you know, uh, it's pretty messed right. up and fun. It's cool. funny. I mean, I certainly think that you could do um, a launching point, like where the world then diverges, like Shadowrun before Shadowrun becomes completely cyber, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, the original version of Shadowrun. Suddenly, there's orcs and elves that they've returned into our world, right? But they have sort of modern mores to, to deal with. Um, but to keep our world unaffected would be difficult, right? But, yeah. but well, yeah. yeah. So you had mentioned earlier um, the '70s in Southern California was a crazy place, <laughs> and um, I had this thought actually early this morning, uh, and that what you said triggered that. As I was thinking, wouldn't it have been awesome if PK Dick had hung out with Philip Jose Farmer? Um, these two incredible thinkers off the wall um boy they should have been friends (laughs) (laughs) and that is a great note to start wrapping up on uh, because we are running out of time here and eric do you have any other kind of last thought about this book or this series that you wanted to share with us before we wrap up uh sure i think for um uh farmer readers uh that this uh book you know represents the height of his uh, fantasy uh, sci-fi book. 
and um, you know, with more of an edge toward the fantasy, where the sci-fi is is traped in that other uh, things. And um, so, if that's your main bag, I mean, this this book, don't quit reading on the second book. Keep going, right? Because this book is is well well worth it. Agreed. And if you're super stubborn, you could probably just read this book on its own. But, Fair. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Or just go from uh, the first to the third. Because yeah, right. I agree. The second is 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 definitely a much weaker installment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, I I think you know this work is the next step to what I view myself as his best work, Riverworld. Um, it has far less fantasy trappings uh, and more uh, sci-fi, but the issues and the motifs and the themes of second chances and alternate worlds and uh, morality and uh, sexuality and uh, these social experiments when you look at science pushed to its absolute limits, in this case, making worlds, um, and what are the responsibility of the lords that oversee these worlds, all of those things ring true in both series. You're just not going to get the swords. Right. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you, Eric. If people want to find you on the internet in the world of social medias, how can people do that? They can't. They can't. Okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> um, I have a Facebook that I don't use. I don't know when people die, get married, uh, or have babies anymore. <laughs> um, if you know somebody who knows me, uh, you can get my phone number and text me. <laughs> I almost missed out on this entire thing because I don't check my email. <laughs> um, if you want to see what my humor is like, you can watch any of the uh, videos from uh, Gen Con from the last couple of years. I'm the one putting in all the ridiculous special effects and polar bears uh, <laughs> in, into those videos. Um, otherwise, I'm too busy to be online. Read books. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Eric. So our next two episodes, episode 56, will be on Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword, and episode 57 will be on Roger Zelazny's The Guns of Avalon. Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. Uh, if you want to send emails that we will actually read, it's at Appendix, <laughs> Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Appendix underscore N. We're also on MeWe, Facebook, and some other community, I think. And uh, if you like us, please rate us and leave some feedback on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. Perfect. And speaking of emails, we've been receiving some great emails from listeners recently. So we just wanted to say thanks to Mara, Adam, Robbie, and Willard for your emails. It's always great hearing from you guys. We really appreciate that. We also have a Patreon. If you're a listener of the show and you would like to show us your support, go to Patreon, uh, pledge a dollar a month. Even just that $1 a month helps us so much. It allows for us to invest more money into equipment. Um, It allows for us to make the show a better product. And in that spirit, we would like to go ahead and give a shout out to a few of our patrons. We would like to thank William Souter, Eric Johnson, Joseph, Noah Green, Ethan Schoonover, Andrew Sternick, Andy Action, Stanley Raduski, Vasily Kalaman, and Peter Martino. There are others, but we, 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 we pull a ra- some random names out of a hat each time, and these are the ones we have for this episode. So thank you all so much for your support. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>